chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians, first five verses say, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed for this. For in fact, we told you before that we were with you, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Now, <clears throat> Paul, after his uh, first two chapters, kind of of introduction, he talks, he's in Athens writing to Thessalonica where he was only able to spend a couple of months. He was driven out of there. I think we covered this last week. He was driven out of there by an angry mob. And that's Acts chapter 17. First 10 verses of Acts 17 is why Paul is no longer in Thessalonica. And this is what happened. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul, as was his custom, went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. And then you see in verse five, but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Now, so they attacked Jason's house. They're trying to get all of these all of Paul and his followers violently out of their city, so they flee. Now, Paul just established that church. It's very young. It's in its infancy. He's no longer there to shepherd it, so he's very concerned that as there's an angry mob against Christianity there, uh, how are they doing without him, right? Here's what I like about what he's saying in chapter 3. He's so regretting that he can't be with them. He loves them so much, he can't wait to hear about them. <clears throat> and he uses this word endure a couple times. Verse 1, he says, when we could no longer endure it, we were going to stay in Athens alone because it's not safe for us to go there. But we sent Timothy to you to find out about your faith. We want to know as you get afflicted, like we were driven out of town, Yeah. Um, as we were, okay. Now, so as this letter starts, this is for people at home. Thank you for waiting. As we start chapter three, Paul's writing back to the church of Thessalonica because he spent very, very little time with them. He got driven out, as we see in Acts chapter 17, he got driven out of Thessalonica by an angry mob. He's writing back to them to see how they're doing. And one of the words that I like in the first five verses that he uses twice is this word endure. In verse one, he says, we can no longer endure it. We thought we'd send Timothy to you to find out about you. And then again, in verse five, he says, for this reason, when I can no longer endure it, I said to know your faith, to make sure the tempter hasn't tempted you and our labor might not be in vain. Did we lose it? All right. All right. Now, here's why, here's why I like this idea of Paul saying, listen, I can't endure not knowing about you. Um, I, I, I'm worried that the tempter might have tempted you and I can't endure not knowing anymore. Because if there's one person that can endure anything, it was the Apostle Paul. For instance, if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if we go to 1 Corinthians 9 in uh, verse 12, <coughs> Paul says this in, in the second part of verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we have not used this right but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. In other words, listen, when the apostle shows up at these churches all over the, all over the Mediterranean world there, he's saying, 
you guys need to be trained up in such a way that your shepherd can shepherd you without worrying about going to get another job or doing anything like that. You need to take care of your shepherd. He says, but I never took your food, took your money. I never did anything. I made tents. I, I supported myself because I don't want to be a hindrance to you guys. And I don't want anybody accusing me that I'm doing this for the money because that will hinder the gospel of Christ. So, so in uh, verse 12b, he says, listen, he can go, he's saying he can go hungry, he can go without shelter, he can do anything. He says, I can endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Yet now we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and twice he says, listen, I cannot endure this. What can't he endure? Not knowing how this church is doing. Do you hear how much love has to go into that type of thing? If you don't yet, this will help you. First uh, Corinthians 11, First <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 11, this is... Um, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is, to me, one of the most heroic lives lived because of what Paul could endure for the gospel. So we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 16. Paul says, I say again, let nobody think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, so that I may, may also boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, But as it were, foolishly, in this confidence of boasting, shouldn't have taught on endurance tonight. <laughs> Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, or if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But when every... But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. <clears throat> so now he's giving his credibility. And in 22, he's saying, listen, you guys keep saying I'm not one of the or original 12 apostles. And he's not. He's not one of the original 12. But they're saying, why should we listen to you if you're not one of the original 12? Well, he's going to compare himself to the 12 now. And he's already saying, listen, it's foolish to boast, but because you guys aren't giving me credibility, I'm going to have to boast a little. So he says about the other 12, comparing them to him, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? And now he says, I speak as a fool because he doesn't like to boast. He says, I am more. Can you imagine saying I'm more of a minister of Christ than Peter, James, John, all those guys? He, and here's why. I'm more of a minister of Christ. It's not because he gets bigger audiences or all that. He says, because I'm in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure. Those are his whippings. In prison more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils of false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often. Finally, there's one that I can relate to. I've gone without sleep before and miserable, right? Imagine if all of this were true of you. In hunger, no, because I eat right away. Thirst, and fastings often, and cold and nakedness, besides the other things. Now listen to Paul here, because what's his issue in Thessalonica? I can't endure not hearing about how you're doing, right? Now he says this, with all of those beatings, imprisonments, and near-death experiences, he says, and what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. He says, you know what? The floggings only happened five times. The beating with rods over my head only happened three times. The shipwreck only happened once and all that. But you know what happens to me every day is my deep concern for all the churches. He includes that in his list of sufferings. Isn't that fascinating? Okay. So he says, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to stumble and I don't burn with indignation? <clears throat> now, um, now, I want you to take all that suffering that he had to endure now he's going to contrast that with a vision that God gave him starting in chapter 12. So he continues by saying, it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. 
So I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now he's going to speak in the third person, but we certainly know he's speaking of himself. And that'll come clear as we go on. So don't be confused by the third person language. He's speaking of himself. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I don't know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. So they would think of this atmosphere where the clouds are as the first heaven. They would think of outer space as the second heaven. And they would think of where God and the angels dwell as the third heaven. He says, I was caught up to that third heaven. So I got to see the eternal dwelling place of the believer, right? I see this third heaven. He says, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. He was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. He's saying, I saw things so inexpressible that the human language doesn't have the words to, to convey what I saw. In other words, the greatest expressions of paradise you can possibly think of, Paul says, no, it's better than that. That's what you need to know about your eternity. Remember when Paul said, listen, uh, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's not even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. It's his way of saying, listen, I saw it, <clears throat> yet it's impossible to express it in human language. It's just better than all that. He calls it, he uses the term, um, it's, it's uh, exceeding greatness, okay? So that means as great as you can think of heaven, Paul would say it exceeds that. It's exceeding greatness. So you say, well, I'm going to think of it as even greater. He's saying exceeding that. It's like these tidal waves of greatness that just keep pouring over uh, and Paul's just saying it's his overwhelming greatness, okay? Do you know it would take a vision like that to have us endure the stuff that Paul endured, right? So watch what he says now. Now, with all of that suffering, with the vision of heaven he had, now see what this sounds like to you in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It's one of the most spectacular verses. Does Paul know about suffering? Does Paul know about glory? He's the expert on both, correct? So what is the expert who saw heaven and suffered more than anybody you'll ever meet? He says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. He said, I saw them both and the glory so outweighs the suffering and ain't worthy of comparison, okay? I always like to think of Elon Musk stopping on the sidewalk to pick up a nickel. It's like, was that really worth it? Does that nickel do anything for your overall wealth that makes any difference at all? It's like not worthy to compare to the wealth you already have, right? So leave the nickel alone. Paul's saying that's your sufferings in this present time compared to the glory that shall be revealed. That's how we endure. We need to know these things, right? We need to know the sufferings of this world are not worthy of comparing. Well, don't you know how much I suffer? I don't, but look what Paul went through, and he's the one that knows, okay? You know how, how brutal Jesus' 39 lashes were, right? Imagine five different occasions getting whipped like that, okay? So the, the expert on both says the glory far outweighs the suffering. Don't even compare them, it ain't worth it. Now, what's the lesson that Paul teaches through suffering? Well, it's still 1 Corinthians 12, as we, um, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, 12, 7. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. There we say, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. He saw such great things, he's worried that he's going to just be so exalted and boastful that it's not going to be a good thing. So he says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So how bad is it that we exalt ourselves? Paul said, when I got shown heaven, God had to give me what he called the messenger of Satan to torment me to make sure I didn't get exalted above measure. Okay, so however bad you think self-exaltation is, if it gets really bad, we're learning that it's worthy of a, a messenger of Satan to torment you just to keep you humble again, okay? Now, he says, uh, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Three times he said, Lord, take this away from me. And he said to me, 
my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So you say, listen, Paul, you will never, ever know, as an apostle who's supposed to start churches and train up leaders of churches and, and, and disciple people, you will never, ever know about my sufficient grace unless you're somebody who needs grace, and then when you're given to it, you realize it's enough. So how can Paul teach us about God's sufficient grace? He's made to suffer greatly. And when Paul cries out, no more, no more, take it, take it, God gives him enough grace to endure. He says, now you're learning that my grace is always sufficient for you. You can't learn that if I just take away the suffering. You will always receive sufficient grace, always receive sufficient grace. There's nothing you'll go through that God's not willing to give you enough grace to endure, okay? Sometimes it's hard to believe. That's why I love that it's Paul saying it. This isn't some guy that's living a cushy life that just has some intellectual understanding of this. This is a guy that's been there, done that time and time and time again, and his conclusion is his grace is sufficient for him because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Why is it made perfect? My best understanding of that is this, because that's when you have no other story to tell but what God did for you. That's what makes it perfect. Gets rid of the self-exaltation, doesn't it? My only explanation for this is what God has done for me. That's how it gets perfected. All right. Um, what's the triumphant result of suffering for Christ, of Christian suffering? Um, I'm going to bring you to Philippians 4, Philippians 4, 10 through 13. And what I'm trying to show you here, again, is the triumphant result of Christian suffering. Paul says, Philippians 4, 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Whatever state he learned to be content, even California. And that ain't easy, right? <laughs> even with a cold, I still got it, right? All right. <laughs> so I... <laughs> For I learned to be content in whatever state I am. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I have learned, it's a learning process, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. The conclusion, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay? He's saying, I learned that. I learned this process. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's why I made a big deal at CCA many, many years ago. Every time I see sports teams wearing Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like, it's not true that way. I, I wore that verse, and I couldn't dunk a basketball, right? <clears throat> you can't do all athletic things through Christ who strengthens you. This is a suffering verse. This is an endurance verse. There's nothing that God's grace won't prove sufficient for you. There's nothing you'll be able to get through anything with Christ. Whatsoever, no exceptions. With Christ, you can endure all things. We have to learn that from Paul. All right. And to me, the verse that I keep coming up with time and time again over the last year or so, it, to me, it all rings of I'm trying to always, I'm, all, I'm trying to always make Psalm 23, 1 um, an active verse in my life day after day which is simply, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's a verse of sufficiency. Why do I don't have any wants? Because the Lord's my shepherd. You think he's going to leave me needy and wanty? No. Even in tremendous trials, I will find sufficient grace. Okay, no matter what happens, I will find sufficient grace. Now, can you imagine if society embraced that? Society just embraced that. Everybody found sufficiency in Christ. What would this world look like, right? It'd be incredible. If you always found, if everybody could find sufficient grace in Christ, well, <clears throat> this is a room full of people that should start always consciously looking for that, right? No matter what you're going through. I know there's sufficiency in Christ and His grace for my situation. And if you don't experience it or feel it, it's just a matter of, Lord, you're my shepherd. The expression of you being my shepherd is that I shall not want. I want to know what it's like to experience your sufficiency. Okay? All right. Now, 
verse 6, 1 Thessalonians 3. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, so Timothy is the one that he sent to Thessalonica to check on their faith. Now he's come back to Paul to report on the Thessalonians. He says, now that Timothy has come back to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all of our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. He's saying, here's what's bringing me life, knowing that you're standing fast in the Lord. Isn't that exactly how you feel about your kids? If I know they're standing fast in the Lord, I'm good, right? Okay, so Paul feels this parental love towards his churches. If my churches are standing fast in the Lord, I'm good, okay? It's, it's a parental love is what I'm showing uh, that Paul is, is having here. All right, um, <clears throat> verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your face. So the results of the Thessalonians' faith bring Paul to inexpressible thankfulness. This is why our worldview needs to increasingly be Christ-centered. It's where all the truly everlasting good news is. In other words, when we have a perspective of people's spiritual well-being being more important than their, their health, their personal comfort, or anything like that, if we're looking out for their spiritual well-being and we guide them towards Christ's sufficiency in all situations, they can endure all things through Christ who strengthens them, okay, then I think uh, we'll feel the joy that Paul felt as a, a parent over this church. All right. Verse um, 11, 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. He wants to get back to them. He's hoping God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ direct his way back to them. Um, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that... He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, you see at the beginning of verse 13 there, it starts with the word so that, right? So that. So, so whenever I see a phrase like so that, I like to deal with that section backwards. Why? The so that of verse 13 is giving you the results of something. So I want to start with what's the goal? What are the results that Paul's pointing at? So once I establish what the results are that I'm to achieve, then I can look back at how he says you get there, right? So let's start, it's like, it's like you know, um, starting with the end in mind. Let's start with the end in mind. So what's the end goal? That you your hearts are established blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The goal is that your heart is blameless in holiness at the coming of the Lord. That's the goal, okay? So now he says, let me give you some advice on getting there. So go, let's go back to um, 11 and 12. I see three things he says to keep in mind in these verses. First fact is this, always keep in mind that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Always keep in mind that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Um, so many decisions that we're to make in this life that go against our flesh are a lot easier to make if we have the end in mind that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back one day, right? If he comes back in your lifetime, you ever wonder what you're, you're doing the moment he comes back? Can you imagine going, I can't believe you came just now right? Okay. You came back just now. How embarrassing for me that this is when you chose to come back. Not like he didn't see everything else before, but he's coming back at a certain moment in time. And that certain moment of time, many people in this world, including Christians, are going to be doing embarrassing things. Okay. <clears throat> well, what will help you to avoid those embarrassing things? Always keep in mind the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Okay. He's, oh, he's coming back. <clears throat> Second thing, we see in these verses, 
One of the things Jesus will do when he comes back is establish our hearts blameless in holiness before God the Father. So the first thing is he's coming back, and when he comes back, for the believer, he's going to establish your hearts blameless. Why? He took the blame, didn't he? He took the blame for all our stuff. And so it's going to be blameless in holiness. Now, is heaven a happy place? He's going to make you blameless in holiness. So your, your perfect happiness for eternity is in what state? It's in the state of holiness. Well, if holiness is going to be your permanent happiness, then why wouldn't it make you happy here? Why would you choose things of the world to try to make you happy when your permanent state of happiness is going to be described by holiness? So, in other words, there's a joy in holiness to experience that we should be pursuing now. Okay, we should be pursuing those happinesses now. Now, if you guys have been with me for, and it's probably been a couple of years um, since I've said this, but um, I had a, a situation with my granddaughter that taught me so much about innocence and purity and, and all of that and the joy that comes with it. Because I was playing with her in our garage. We had the garage door open. My neighbor, who's got a little tiny white dog, was walking by our house, and I asked him to bring his dog in the garage because I think my granddaughter was like two years old at the time, and I wanted to see her interact with this dog. So he brings the dog over, and the dog starts like diving in and out at her feet, just playing around, right? And my granddaughter started laughing so abundantly to see this girl who's like two years old, you know, just barely standing on her own and all that, folded in half like you would think her face is start, going to start tearing from the huge smile across her face, laughing with this abundant joy in her eyes. And as I'm watching her, I'm thinking, I don't know that there's anybody of the 8 billion of us that's happier than she is right now. She doesn't have any more capacity for joy. She's completely full. I can't imagine her have been any happier in that moment. And from what? A dog jumping in and out at her feet, Right? It was so pure, it was so innocent, and, you know, people say they hear from God, what is that? I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know what that is, but I'll tell you this, I started getting things in my head that I've been saying ever since. One of those things was, this is what it was like in the Garden of Eden. It was this fullness of joy. There was no shame or regret attached to it. There was no sin in it whatsoever. It was pure, unadulterated happiness and joy. That there would be no shame attached to it, no regret attached to it. It was just pure joy. Okay? And the second thing was, being a teacher of high schoolers, was how do I convince them that that joy is available to them without the drugs, without the alcohol, without vaping, without all that other stuff? How can I show them that there's a joy like she's experiencing that, that is free of all that stuff? Because my granddaughter was, is, never has anything about that moment she'll have to regret, lie about, hide, or anything, right? It was the purest and most abundant ha happiness I, I can to this day remember anybody ever experiencing. All right? So if holiness is the state you're in where you have perfect joy forever, then trust that holiness is going to be a happier state for you to be in here than all the stuff the world's telling you to get happy by. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> now, so the three things to keep in mind, Lord Jesus Christ coming back, he's going to establish our hearts, blameless and holiness to God the Father. The third one is these immensely important facts stem from loving one another and loving all people and Paul's a perfect example of that, because what did it say there at the end? He says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and to all as just as we do to you. So you're going to see in chapter four, he's going to mention, hey, you guys, I know you're loving each other and you're loving God. I know you're doing that. But then he says, but I want you to increase in it even more. So in other words, there's no ceiling on love, Okay. So even if you have great relationships in your family and everything's going well and there's a lot of love going on, here's what Paul would say, increase in it. But it's good. No, but, but there's no ceiling here. You know, increase in love. Well, I'll wait till we get to that verse before I, I do that. All right, chapter uh, four. 
Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. The commands that they were given were likely the ones pertaining to discipleship. And you're going to see, okay, so I hope you're comfortable because um, this letter is going to change tones really quick here on us. So um, he starts by saying, you know the commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is sanctification? It's through your relationship with Christ, you're becoming more and more like Christ as you walk with Him, right? You're becoming more like Jesus all the time as you walk with Christ. That's your sanctification. Uh, I can think of things, you know, as I started walking with the Lord in my 20s, I can easily identify things that were very immature about that walk and wasn't full of faith in my walk. And then I can look at my 30s and see how much better I did and then my 40s and so forth. And I'm better in my 50s than I was in my 40s and my 30s, and I plan on being better in my 60s. Why can I say that confidently? Because God is doing a sanctifying work. Sanctification is the will of God for your life. It's His will for you that you're more like Jesus tomorrow than you were today, and that that process never stops. It says, this is the will of God for your life. It's your sanctification. Now, He's going to unpack that sanctification in the ways that apply most to his audience. And I'm going to say what applies most to his audience certainly applies most to everybody you've met, to us, to everybody. He starts by saying that you should abstain from sexual immorality. We have so much sexual immorality going on in our society that there's many things that are sexually immoral that we don't even recognize as sexually immoral anymore. It's to us, it's just normal now. It's just normal, okay? I promise you, that I still marvel. And listen, um, I don't know what's going to offend who or what or when, and, uh, but I don't know. Here it is. So I marvel that we've allowed over time that our girls feel comfortable being in public on beaches with no backside to their bathing suit. I cannot believe we've gotten there. How in the world are they comfortable with that at all? I do not know. But there's so much sexual immorality that the shame is gone. There's zero shame that they feel about that, okay? Uh, To me, that's a sign that where we're supposed to be, we're so far from where we're supposed to be that we don't even recognize it anymore. That's just become normal. And then... um, The ancient writer Demosthenes said this. He, he was a, um, he's from the Roman Empire. He's an ancient writer from the Roman Empire. And this is how sexually moral that society was that Paul's writing to about sexual immorality. He said this, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day, for the day-to-day needs of the body we keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes, <laughs> okay? That's sexual immorality. We keep wives for the home. We keep mistresses for day-to-day needs of the body. We keep prostitutes for pleasure. That's who Paul's writing to, okay? Now, bottom line of all, well, let's read a little bit further first. Verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, Possess your body in what way? Sanctifying way, in a way that's honoring, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. Sexual immorality is behaving like people who don't know God, okay? Now, there's just so many things to say about this. Um... Just like, well, anyway, here it is. These things should be so obvious to us because God, here's what God has said about sex. It's to produce life, right? 
sex is an entirely sacred and holy act. There's no other act in this universe that can produce life. So is life sacred? The act that produces life is entirely sacred. We are so far removed from that, makes me wonder how a Christian audience even receives it, to be honest with you. It's entirely sacred. It's obvious that it's entirely sacred because half the stuff to make a human being is in the man. The other half is in the woman. If they don't get together, life ain't gonna happen. And the way it comes together is in a very pleasurable way. It's the reward for, for wanting to have children. It's not a reward just because you want to feel that way. It's a reward for the sacredness of the act because life has got to continue. The very first commands of God be fruitful and multiply. And he gives reward for that. He makes it very pleasurable. So we see that. We say, I like the pleasure. I don't like the kids. So I'm going to do everything to avoid the kids, even kill them if I have to. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. It's just by the nature of it, extremely obvious that God requires marriage for sex because life is supposed to come from that act. And when that life comes, there are things that only a dad can bring for the overall health and well-being of that child and things only a mom can bring for the overall health and well-being of that child. And therefore, God requires that a covenant is made publicly where you're promising each other that you will never, ever leave each other and that it doesn't matter how bad things get, doesn't matter how good things get, don't matter how rich you are, doesn't matter how poor you are, nothing but death will separate you. That's largely for the sake of the child, that this child is entitled to a mom and a dad throughout his upbringing to have that what God has for a man to be to a child and what God has for a woman to be to a child, that they have that. It's ordained by God that they have that picture growing up, okay? And so when we look at problems in society, we got to look at the fact that how are these kids coming up? Now, no doubt there's single parents that could do great jobs, no doubt, okay? But it's not the design at all, okay? And that single parent is probably a lot more worn down than they were designed to be. There's supposed to be a help there. There's supposed to be the combination there. Now, I don't know if you'll believe this statement or not, but I'm going to make it anyway. But 28 years of teaching high schoolers, I can tell you it's not that difficult as you spend day after day for months with them to start picking up on there's not a strong dad in that home. There's, you can just tell. It's, it's, there's noticeable things. Say there's not a strong dad in that home if there's any dad in that home. It makes a big, big difference. Now... <clears throat> Paul goes on to say in verse 6, goes on to say in verse 6, he says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Paul says, listen, God will avenge sexual immorality. It's serious business because he designed it, he has a plan for it, and he doesn't look for people just to ignore that says, you need to know the Lord's the avenger of all such. Now, he says, don't take advantage of and defraud your brother in this matter. So how can you defraud somebody in the matter of sex? Well, <clears throat> the married person defrauds his or her spouse by violating the marriage covenant. You said you'd never do it and you did it. You defrauded them. It's such a defrauding that God says to the victim, you can leave. I know you promised me you never would, but I'm going to let you leave because of the fraud that was, went on in that, in, that, in that wedding ceremony. That was fraud. You said you wouldn't and you did. You're a fraud, okay? So don't defraud, he's saying, your brother in this matter. So married people defraud each other by having sex with anybody that's not their spouse. The fornicator, the people that are not married that have sex with each other, they defraud their own future spouse and the future spouse of their partner by robbing both yourself and that person of the virginity that was reserved for the marriage bed of somebody else. 
It's supposed to be that way, okay? We are so far removed from it that I'm probably shocking so many people. It's a beautiful picture of how things are supposed to be. Now, if we were sexually immoral and yet everybody was very sexually healthy, then this should be hard to believe. Are we a sexually healthy society? Are we a sexually immoral society? What is two plus two equal? That's four, okay? <laughs> I see you struggling, okay? <laughs> Some of you are on your fingers, <laughs> all right? All right. Leviticus 18, okay? <laughs> Some of you probably don't know the Bible goes to these dark places, but watch where the Bible's going to go with this. Leviticus 18, And then I'm going to bring you to Noah, and I think I might say something with that one that literally you might not ever come back. So be ready to say goodbye to your friends here, okay? Leviticus 18, <clears throat> I'll just start in uh, verse 6. God says, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I just want you to see this phrase, uncover his nakedness. He says, I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. You guys are good with that one, right? I'm trying to be a little humorous here, right? Listen. Okay, now listen. The nakedness of your father and the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. Uh, the nakedness, she, she is your mother, you shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, so this would be like a stepmom. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. Now listen to this phrase. It is your father's nakedness. It says, don't uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Why? Because that's your father's nakedness. So I want you to see what this terminology is saying. This terminology is saying this. Listen, when people are married, the nakedness of one is the nakedness of the, the other, right? They're, they're together, they're one. To violate the one is to violate the other. There's no way to emotionally escape any sexual infidelity on the one. The other one's going to be impacted, Correct? Okay, there's just no escaping it, okay? But now it says, listen, don't uncover your stepmom's nakedness because that is your father's nakedness. Now, what sense does that make? Well, before I tell you, let me bring you to Genesis 6, or I'm sorry, Genesis 9. Let me bring you to Genesis 9. I am going to literally ruin Noah for you in just a second, or at least his son, okay? Starting at verse 20, this is after the flood, it says, and Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, notice how Canaan's not even born yet, but it keeps telling you about Canaan. Canaan's not even born in the story. But it says, this guy's the father of Canaan. Why? Because who's the perpetual enemy of the Jews throughout time? Canaanites. It's saying, here's how they got here. Here's why the Canaanites are the enemy all the time. So in Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren.'" He puts a curse on the son of Ham, okay, because of what just happened. Well, it sounds like the only thing that happened is he walked in, dad's drunk and naked. Hey, guys, look, dad's drunk and naked. Now, do you think that deserves like a generational curse? Well, what did Leviticus 18 say? The nakedness of your father is your mother's nakedness, right? This language, okay, this language, you can look in scholarship yourself, okay, is hinting at the fact that Noah's nakedness is his wife's nakedness. So what, what, what Ham did was walk in on his father's nakedness, which is his mother, and did something incestual with her in there. That's why the curse is so severe, okay? Now, if you think I sit at home and just make this stuff up, I promise you I'm not. This is from serious scholarship on the Hebrew words and phrases and all of that. Now, it's not absolutely certain, but it's certainly, the, the wording is certainly within the range of saying, 
this is not Noah just being naked and drunk, and now there's this huge curse that's going on that makes the Canaanites perpetual enemies of the Israelites. There's something more that goes on that justifies that type of punishment. And because Leviticus 18 says the nakedness of the one is the nakedness of the other, but it names the father's nakedness because he's the head, what he actually did was go in and have an ancestral race slip with his naked mother in there. Okay? And that's what Ham did wrong. Now, Lord, forgive me if that was wrong, because I hate to say that about Ham, but, but, there, but that is certainly within the, the verbal range of the text of understanding the Hebrew here. Okay? Now, that's all to say that sexual immorality is very, very serious, that it's for the marriage bed. You see a generational curse on the Canaanites because of what happened in Genesis 9. Now, <clears throat> so the four reasons Paul gives us for being sexually pure, he says, because the Lord avenges that behavior. He says, because you were called to cleanness and holiness. Because he says, I don't even know if I read this yet, but back to 1 Thessalonians 4. He says in verse 7, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So the four reasons for, to be sexually pure, Paul says, because the Lord avenges all such sexually impure behavior. God has called us to cleanness and holiness, of which this is the opposite, because a rejection of this teaching is a rejection of God, not of Paul or, or Noah or anybody. It's a rejection of God and what he wants to do with us sexually. That didn't sound right at all. What, what he intends by our sexual lives. All right, now. And fourthly, he says, because God has given you Holy Spirit power. He's given you the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you're not too weak to do this right. You're not too weak to do it right. He's given you the, his Holy Spirit. Paul ends this teaching on being sexually pure by saying, you are given the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? You should be able to do this. All right. Finishing up. Nine. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So he's saying there's this natural revelation of God that <clears throat> you don't have to be taught. You should know just to love one another. So you've been taught by God that. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So that's what I was talking about before. He says, you have general revelation to love one another. Every society knows they should be loving one another. He says, that's kind of general revelation, but here's more uh, particular revelation for the believer. Do that more and more. This is where I was talking about. There's no ceiling on God's love. It's infinitely upward. So always be tapping into the next level of love. Always be tapping into the next level of love. Verse 11, that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. Isn't that good? You get to say that out loud? Okay. Paul says, listen, mind your own business. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly to those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Okay, now, I want to look at these verses backwards as well. What's the goal? That you may walk properly, right, to those who are outside, that your life is a good witness to the unbeliever, right? That your life is, is a walking, living gospel to the unbeliever. And that you may lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That you lack nothing. So how do we get to this awesome place of walking properly to those that are on the outside and that we lack nothing? Well, let's step it back. Verse 11, he said, <clears throat> um, that you aspire to lead a quiet life. So what is that? Well, this is extraordinarily hard for us in this day and age to lead a quiet life. I, I shared with you the student who I challenged for 10 minutes of silence. Did I do that out loud or was that back there? That was with you guys? Okay. So I literally had a student so stressed out with anxiety, she was crying to me today. And when I asked her, how'd you start your day? Uh, I go through these reels on Facebook, looking at videos. Then I get ready for school while I'm listening to this or that or the other thing. And then I drive to school, listen to this, that, or the other thing. Then I'm in school. And then when I'm at lunch, I'm on social media or talking with my friend. She has zero silence in her life. There's never a moment of quiet 
in her life. So I challenged her today, just 10 minutes. I said, before you go to bed, I want 10 minutes of hearing from nobody, looking at nothing. And she says, my mind will go crazy. And I said, well, then just tell Lord, Lord, meet me here in this moment. Meet me here in this moment. Let me experience what your peace is like. And she was telling me, I don't think I can do it. I said, well, then do five minutes. So, you see how far gone this is? It's so far gone. And it's, this is not unusual for our, for our youth, by the way, okay? So Paul says, aspire to lead a quiet life. Listen, if your life's not quiet, then you're never, you're never hearing what you're supposed to hear. You're hearing all the garbage that people are doing or whatever. But what are you supposed to be hearing? There's so many supposed tos that never get done, okay? So what are you supposed to be hearing? You're supposed to be hearing from the Lord, Paul says, aspire to lead a quiet life. Second thing, to mind your own business, okay? So this is not a call to be neglectful of others. He just said we need to grow in love, correct? Okay, it's a call to limit your involvement with people to the business of being useful and helpful. So however you're involved with people, make sure it's on the level of being useful and helpful, not gossipy and all that other stuff. Just be useful and helpful, okay? It's how you can how you can mind your own business, and to work with your own hands. In the, in the next book, Second Thessalonians, you're going to hear this. Paul says this, if you don't work, you don't eat. What a welfare system that would be, right? That should be the verse over every welfare office door. <laughs> you don't work, you don't eat, okay? <clears throat> work with your own hands. Be productive. Add to society by the day you lived instead of draining society of their resources because of how you live, okay? Uh, work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may, now here's the result, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. All right, 13. But I do not, oh no, we're not doing 13 until next week. That's the second coming of the Lord. No, we, <laughs> no. And maybe, because we're delaying this till next week, we'll actually talk about this in heaven if he comes, right? And then, you'll, you'll, then, then you'll tell me about your experience. I won't have to teach you nothing, right? That'll be great. All right. Thank you for bearing with the issues and uh, my voice and everything else. And let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. And who could ever write stuff like this unless they're inspired by you, Lord? And Lord, as... Um, we receive both the commands to love and to enjoy and all of that. We also were greatly rebuked by your word tonight, Lord, because we do live in our own personal Thessalonica, Lord, with sexual immorality and so far gone, Lord, that we're very comfortable with it. So I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would convict us in every area that we're walking improperly and not being who we're supposed to be. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the power to repent and to reject it and become the men and women of God, Lord, that you would be very pleased with. So I pray, Lord, that you use the last hour of our night to do more than we could ask or imagine with it, Lord, because, because you're you, Lord, and your Spirit can do all things. So we want to submit, Lord, to your great love and your great power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.